thank you, Greg, and those that helped him lead us in worship. Thank you so much. Thank you, young men, for helping us uh, take up the offering and the tithes as we collect them every single week. It was February in 2013. There was a couple uh, that was uh, walking around their property line. They were actually walking their dog in a property they owned around the area that we know as Sierra Nevada out in California. And this couple was walking their dog through a path that they had walked many, many times. And along the path, they noticed a metal can protruding from the earth. Part of it was buried, part of it was sticking out, and so that kind of got them interested and kind of perked their curiosity, and so they got down there, and they, and then they dug the can out, and it was a really heavy can, and so they thought, well, uh, the husband just assumed that it had lead paint in it, so they said, well, we need to get it out of here and get it and dispose of it properly, so uh, they're carrying it back to their house, and along the way, this can um, pretty rusted, the, the lid breaks on it and exposes the contents. And inside of this metal can was gold coins. Some of the gold coins were $5 denominations, some of them were $10 denominations, some of them were $20 denomination, but gold coins. And so they, they got the can back to the house and they, and they went back and uh, you can imagine they, they went back and they, and they looked for some more cans and they ended, up finding, they ended up finding eight cans in all. Now this is known by historians as the Saddle Ridge Hoard, because they found these eight cans, and inside of these eight cans, there was 1,427 different gold pieces. And if you looked at the face value, it equal a little bit more, almost $28,000. But as they got it to the coin dealers, and they got it to the people that could look at it and inspect it, they said that these eight cans and these coins valued in today's currency at valuation over $10 million. Now the name of the couple, they won't release. They won't release where it was found at except for when it was found and who was representing the family because of course they don't want treasure hunters and other people climbing over the fence, trespassing, trying to find it. But you can Google, you can look up the Saddle Ridge Hoard. But what is most fascinating to me is that they have these coins, they know an approximate value, but nobody knows where they came from. Nobody knows who made the coins. Nobody knows who buried the coins. Nobody knows why they put the coins there. They just know after a period of time, they found the coins. You know, there's mysteries in this world all around us. We have mysteries in our daily lives. We even have mysteries in the church. Have you ever wondered why 11.15 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most sleepy time of your week? Maybe it's me, maybe it's you, I don't know. But it's a mystery why that seems to be the most sleepy time of the week. Why is it that we have so much of an easier time memorizing dates or sports teams than we do Scripture? Or maybe this, and this doesn't really pertain to this like this morning, but a lot of times growing up in a traditional Baptist church, you most often sang the first, second, and fourth stanza. Why do we leave out number three? I mean, we're going to be there for the full hour and a half. Why not just sing all four standards? Or why not sing one, three, and four? Or two, three, and four? Or one, two, and three? Who came up? It's like somebody came up and said, well, we're just going to skip that one this Sunday. And it just stuck. You know, there's things in the church that are mysteries. 
But we live in a day and age that we don't like mysteries. We want to know facts. We want to have hard data. And we struggle with mysteries. Well, we've been here in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And that is where we're going to continue at this morning. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. I hope when you came in, you got a bulletin. On the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to access, uh, make reference to those as we walk through the Word of God this morning. But as we're here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about some mysteries. He's going to talk about some mysteries in the church. Some mysteries that are still relevant and present today in the life of the church. And he's just going to give us these mysteries. I'm going to enumerate three of them here in the text this morning. But he's going to give us these mysteries. And, and even as we walk through these this morning, you may say, well, Spence, I don't see why they're mysterious. But when you, uh, hopefully by the time we're done this morning, you'll understand why these mysteries are there. And here's what I want us to gasp this morning. There are some things that are only explainable through God. There's some things that aren't explainable by science. There's some things that aren't explainable by mathematics. There's some things that aren't explainable by logic or human reasoning. There's some things that are only explainable through God. And I think that what Paul is going to show us this morning is that when it comes to things in the church, as we think about how do we grow as a faith family, we think about how do we grow as an individual, we think about how we grow together as a church and grow in this community here in Wilson. There are some things that are only going to be explainable through God. But I'm going to read for us. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm going, to word, I'm going to read down through verse 13 just so we have the sake of context here this morning. And then I want to back up. And I, you see there in your notes, I just want to point you to three mysteries that Paul talks about that were, were, were present then and are still present today. So if you would follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from, from mine. He says, Paul continues in this letter and he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations that has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God add understanding and application to his word this morning. You may 
read this kind of a passage and you may listen to this kind of a passage read and you might say, what in the world is Paul trying to address? What in the world is Paul trying to talk about? Well, if you go back and you understood kind of the, some of the context for the base of the writing or the, 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 the time around the writing of the letter, uh, most scholars would say it's written around 62 AD. And right there in 62 AD, Paul is actually in Rome. He's in a prison cell in Rome and he's writing to a church that he began. He's writing to a church that he fathered. And he's writing to the church that is stuck in turmoil. They have pagan worship over here. They have idolatry over there. They've got a culture that is off of the rails, much like in today's time. And they're wondering, what does it look like to be a church? What does it look like to be a Christian? How does all of this come together? We realize what God is saying, but then we see what the world is saying. And we're wondering, how do these come together? And there's a great mystery on how God is going to do what he's going to do. Has anybody ever wondered... How is this rapture thing going to work? I ain't that great with heights. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I'm not trying to be... I'm just thinking... So you're sitting there and all of a sudden you just start going up and up and up and up. I mean, at some point, am I going to get scared? Am I going to be frightful? Am I going to wonder what's going on? Am I going to realize what's happening? I mean, there's all sorts of things that we know. Sometimes we just say, oh, it's just going to happen. Just be quiet. Do you ever get wondering? Do you ever get curious? You know, there's things that sometimes we just dismiss because we don't want to be that one person to ask the question. Because we assume that everybody else knows the answer. But I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of things in the world today that we don't know. And that's okay. So Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to a church that has a lot of questions. He's writing to a church that's wondering, all right, Paul, how is it that we do this thing called the church in the days in which we live? So Paul is going to write, and you see there in these first few sentences here in chapter 3, these first few verses, he's just telling them, listen, I am going to share with you a revelation that was given to me by God. And I want to tell you these mysteries, and I want to tell you how these mysteries unfold. And the first mystery I want you to see from the text this morning is that we are one in Christ. Paul goes there in verse 3, or sorry, in chapter 3 in verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you. Talks about the stewardship that was given him. Talks about the revelation that he was going to give to them. And then he gets down there in verse 6 and he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, if you are reading this as a Jew, if you are reading this in the current context, you would say, hold on. Let me do an instant replay here. Let me back this up. Let me see if I heard you correctly. You, Paul, are telling me that now, since Christ has come, since Christ has risen, now that we have this new covenant, we and the Gentiles are all the same. And he says, yes, you are all united in one spirit, according to chapter, or according to verse 6. Now, I realize that you're sitting here this morning, and you're like, I don't get it. I don't mean anything to me. Do you realize that because you were here and if you were here this morning and you know without a shadow of a doubt you're saved and you're going to heaven, you realize that we're all in the same family? We're all together in this? We're all in one spirit. Now I'm going to tell you there's a lot of things that God has done with a sense of humor. But you know there's sometimes that God brings people together. And you think how in the world could they ever mesh? How in the world could they ever work? And it's one of those things that God says don't worry about it. I've got it. And the idea that we are all one in spirit. United by the spirit. We are one in Christ. That is a tremendous mysterious truth. 
how in the world, how in the world are we all coming together as one person? We see so much schism today. We see so much division today. We see so much separation today. We see so much hate today. Mo was talking about it this morning in Sunday school. Just some of the videos that were coming out yesterday of some of the conflict and some of the strife that was happening and, and a man walking down the street and another man coming up behind him and hitting him from behind, knocking him to the ground and you see this violence, you see this animosity, you see this schism taking place and yet when it comes to the church, the church is to be one people, one body of Christ. One people together serving one kingdom of God. And Paul comes in and he says, I understand in the days in which you live, you have so much division and so much strife, but I want you to know because of Christ and because you are in Christ, you are now members of the same body. Everybody is now therefore connected. He gets that there in verse 6. He says members of the same body. And then he goes on and reminds us that we're not just members, but we're heirs. We're heirs of the promise in Christ Jesus. All that is right there in verse 6 when he reminds you and I that we are one in Christ. But I don't like being one with you all. I like myself. I like my own time. I like my own preferences. I like my own ideas. I think I know the best thing for me. I'm kind of happy with my my, my path. I'm kind of happy with my direction. I'm kind of happy with my solitude. I'm kind of happy with having things the way that I want things. I don't want to be all connected at the hip, arm in arm, singing kumbaya sometimes. Paul says, get over it. Because now you're in Christ, now you're one people. And now that you're in Christ, you are now connected with the other brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a mystery here, a mystery that sometimes we miss because so often we are so worried about ourselves and our individuality and we forget who we are together as the body of believers. Celebrated just this last Wednesday, Veterans Day. And I remember going through the initial basic training and I remember getting in there and one of the things that we did repetitively and over and over and over again was drill and ceremonies. And I don't know about Mark, but when I got there and drill and ceremonies, I didn't understand what we were doing this for. Because this, what we were doing is not going to help us shoot better, fight better, or live longer. There is nothing that I found in drill and ceremonies that would help me survive a combat situation. You have 10 people in this line, four lines, 10 people in a line, and we've got to step at the same time. We've got to move at the same time. We've got to turn at the same time. And so he's saying half left, half right, full left, full right, all these commands. And then as you're walking, he'll say commands that people are supposed to split. People are supposed to do these flower organ. I mean, there was just all these things and they would sit out there for hours and hours and hours and drill us on being able to get our footwork right, our timing right, our precision right. They wanted us to look like we had all of our stuff together. And I'm wondering, why? What does it matter if I can put my heel in the right spot and pivot just so? What does it matter if we're marching down the road and we both turn at the exact same time? When the bullets are flying, I don't care what heel you're on. physically. (laughs) But as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know, there's a lot of things that they teach us when it comes to drilling ceremonies of just moving as a unit. Moving as a group. Working together. Thinking 
as one. So many times in the world today, we think that we can come and spend two to three hours here at the church and we spend the rest of the time in the world and yet we are going to live, act, shoot, move, and communicate, if you will, like the church. And we wonder why in the world is the church so fractured? Because we're not spending enough time together. Because we're not doing enough things together. Because we're not devoting and investing that time together. We're not drilling into what it is that makes us one. So we have a consumerism mentality where we just come and we get and we take a buffet-style Christianity, and we never come and recognize that we are one in Christ. So Paul is, is wanting to make the point here in this passage. He wants to make the point to the people. Recognize that you are one in Christ. You may not be able to explain it, how God works it all. You may not be able to understand it, how God works it all. But you need to understand there is such a thing as one body of believers. And he talks about a second mystery. Second mystery, starting there in verse 7. He talks about how God uses the church to reach the lost people. How God uses the church to reach the lost people. Now you may be sitting here this morning, you may say, well, does Spence? Of course. But can you imagine God in all knowledge, in all eternity, Him thinking that this is the best idea? I'm going to take First Baptist Church Wilson and I'm going to use them to reach all the lost people in that community I'm going to use this church to reach lost people. And if they don't, and those lost people die, and they go to hell for an eternity, that's it. Kind of think that God maybe could have had a better plan. He's going to trust us. He's going to rely upon us. He's going to give us that kind of privilege, that kind of opportunity. But notice how... Paul wants to explain it. He says there in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He begins to talk about grace. And in verse 8 he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. He's reminding us that he was given grace by God not to keep it, not to hoard it, not, not to uh, be prideful about it. He was given grace to give grace. He was given grace to give grace. Oh, we sometimes forget that we've been forgiven of a great debt. We sometimes forget that we have been forgiven of, of great sin. Sometimes we forget that we were a knucklehead one day too. Sometimes we forget that we one day made mistakes and we one day erred and we one day did bad things, wrong things, things that we're ashamed of, things we're embarrassed about. But you know what? By God's grace, we are who we are today. And sometimes we get in the position now where we start looking at other people and going, well, how could they do that? Or how dare they? Or do they not know better? Should we not understand that God has given us grace to give Grace, not just grace, but he's given us light. He talks about that in verse 9, bringing light to everyone. You and I have been given the light, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of who God is. We've been given this light so that we can share it with those people around us. If we never tell people what God is doing in our lives, we never tell people what God is doing in our hearts, then how do we expect for people to know that not only is God alive, that not only that Jesus lives, but that Jesus is active in our hearts and our lives today. And Paul says, I want you to understand that this whole thing that God is doing in the world today, he's going to use the church. He's going to use the church to reach the lost people. And he's going to do it by grace. He's going to do it by light. He's also going to do it through wisdom, it talks about there in verse 10. This wisdom of God, this wisdom that he has given us to proclaim. And you and I may be sitting there going, well, I don't get that, Spence. Isn't that a lot of responsibility to put on the church? 
Can we not just outsource that? Can we not just do this a different way? Can we not put it off on the Methodist? They're responsible for seeing the lost people get saved. We're not. We're just Baptists. We're just in charge of eating. So we'll just keep eating. We'll let the Methodists do the saving. Could we not just do something different? But he reminds us that the way that people come to Christ is through the church. You may say, well, hold up, Spence, hold up. You mean that somebody has to come physically to this place in order to get saved? No. No, I'm not saying they actually have to physically come to this place. There have been people that have been saved driving down the road. There have been people that have been saved riding in an airplane. There have been people that have been saved in their homes. There have been people that have been saved in their workplaces. There have been people that have been saved everywhere. But I'm going to tell you that when you get saved, you are part of the redeemed and you are part of the family of God. You're part of the church universal, if you will. And we, when you get to be part of the church, you are then to go to other people and tell them about Jesus. Tell them about how they might too be saved. And that is, God, that is how God is reaching this lost world is through people that are saved. You think back to John chapter 3, I think it is, whenever you see uh, uh, Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and all those, and there's a principle that comes out of that, that saved people find people. Or found people find people. And it's this idea that when you and I realize what we have been saved for and what we have been saved to and who has saved us, how can we not say a word the couple that found the gold coins they found the first man and they didn't really know what to do with it they went back and they found the second cane, the third cane, the fourth cane, all the way up to the eight cane. So now they got eight canes of gold coins. They don't know what to do with it. So they find them an ice chest, an old ice chest, an ice chest they're not using anymore. They take all the cans, stuck it, stick it in an ice chest, seal up the ice chest, and then bury the ice chest in the ground and then pile a big old pile of tree limbs and brush all on top of it to hide the freshly disturbed earth because they're not sure what to do with it and they're scared to... They're scared they're going to get robbed. They're scared that it's going to get stolen. They're, they're just so scared and they don't know what to do. Sitting on $10 million of treasure, putting it in an old igloo ice chest. I wonder what God thinks about the truth that he's given us. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with the grace that he's given you? What are you doing with the light that he's given you? What are you doing with the wisdom that he has trusted you with? What are you doing? He has given us these things, Paul says, so that we, we, we might reach the lost. Not that we might be more prosperous. Not that we might have a bigger house. Not that we might have more possessions. Not that we might have more followers on social media. Not so that we can go around with this piety attitude, this pious attitude looking around going, well, I know more than you or you don't know more than me. We, we, no, 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 no. He's given this to us so that we might reach a lost People, I'm going to tell you, there has never been a time in my life that there has been more opportunity to reach lost people. They're all over the place. And they're identifying themselves all over the place. You get on social media and they're just popping their heads up everywhere. They're showing themselves. You get out of the community, they show themselves by their actions, by their, 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 their conduct, by what they're saying, by what they're doing. You're seeing lost people everywhere, and yet the church is sitting here with the greatest treasure ever. And we're hiding it. And we're stuffing it away. Paul says there's a mystery there. 
There's a mystery when we wonder, well, how is God going to do this? How is God going to bring this about? How is God going to see a community like Wilson, Oklahoma, be reached with the gospel? And we wonder, how is God going to do that? And Paul says, I want you to understand that when you recognize that you are one people in Christ, and you recognize that now that you are in Christ, you have the same power, you have the same unction, you have the same opportunity as all believers and you have all power all authority through Christ when you realize that there is nothing that you should be scared of there is nothing that you should be intimidated by there is nothing that you should not be willing to attempt for God nothing and when you realize that God's vehicle and God's avenue for reaching the lost is through the church today then how can we come and be ho-hum How can we come and be satisfied with an hour or two hours a week? How can we come with just sitting and participating? This last truth that he gives us, this last mysterious truth that he gives us has to do with, well, how does the church do it? So we understand that when we're united as one, we have now been united with a purpose. We understand that God then uses this church to reach a lost people. But Spence, how does it work? Do we need a new program? Do we need methodology? Do we need new carpet? Do we need new paint? Do we need to move the church facility to a different location? Do we need a more dynamic speaker? Do we need better music? Do we need a a different time? Do we need a, a nicer website? Do we need more social media advertisement? What do we need to do in order to reach lost people. Oh, and that's the day and age we're living in. You could hire consultants and then come in there and you have church consultants that will come in here and will give an evaluation on your church and will say, if you will just follow these four or five steps, you will automatically increase your attendance. Charles Finney was a man that lived decades and decades ago, but he would come in and he had a system when it came to revivalism. He would come in and he would say, if you do this recipe, you're going to get this result. And there's people today living in the world that says, well, you just do it this step-by-step method, and this will produce results. The problem that I have with so many of those this morning is the fact that they don't come from the Word of God. And quite to the contrary, God's Word gives us a recipe on how it is that we accomplish the thing that God has called us to. So you look there in verse 11. And what does he say? What is this third mystery that he talks about. He said this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is talking about the fact that this church, this, this, the, the, the power that we're looking for in the church, it comes through faith. It doesn't come through programs. It doesn't come through money. It doesn't come through people. It, it, it doesn't come through uh, Many of the tricks and the toys that we try to use today. It comes through faith. The power in the church comes through faith. Notice he says there in verse 11. He says this was according to the eternal purpose. That he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. He he, he is reminding them that this faith of ours. It has a purpose. What is the purpose of our faith? The purpose of our faith is to draw us to God. The purpose of our faith is to point us to God. The purpose of our faith is to orientate ourselves to God. The purpose of our faith is to say I can't explain it. I don't understand it all. But you know what? I can follow and be obedient because God. God has told me to do it, and that's all I need to know. The faith, the faith that comes when we understand our purpose in life is not to be famous, wealthy, or 
happy. Our purpose in life is to bring glory and honor to God. And he reminds us there, Paul is saying, I want you to understand, church there in Ephesus, if you want to be the faithful church, if you want to be the, 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 the church that is pointing people to Christ, if you want to be that people, it's going to rest upon your faith. But we struggle with our faith. We struggle with really believing that God can do it. We really struggle with believing that God wants to do it. We really struggle believing that God that God will do it through us. We'll say things like, well, we want to reach the entire community here in Wilson. Everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah, we want to do that, we want to do that. But how many people really believe that God will? Or God could? Or that God can. Well, we need to pray for Miss So and so. She's got a physical ailment, and boy, the condition doesn't look really good. Yeah, we need to pray for her. But how many of us pray, believing that if God wanted to heal that person or God wanted to take away the ailment, that God could? Or we just simply just say, God, please be with that person, please comfort that person? Or do we really believe by faith that God could do it if He wanted to do it? Sometimes we lose steps when it comes to our faith because we've lost sight of who it is that we're having faith in. He says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He reminds us when it comes to the faith of the church and when it comes to the faith of the individual, our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our programs. Our faith is not in this country. Our faith is not in this election. Our faith is not in our abilities. Our faith is not in our money. Our faith is not in our jobs. Our faith is not in the people around us. Our faith is in our Savior. That's the only place our faith can be. And he says, church, when you understand that all you have and all you're going to be and all you've ever been is dependent upon Christ and if you get to that point that you have no other place that you're trusting or resting or hoping in apart from Christ then you will get to the place that you'll be so desperate for Christ to work that you're not focused on anything else. That you don't care about anything else. And yet I wonder church where our faith is at. What our faith is rested upon. Because it reminds us that we have faith. The faith persevering talks about that in verse 13. Do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. He's reminding them there that this faith, this faith will not only give them the power, the faith will give them the orientation and the direction, the gauge, the priority, all those things. But the faith will help them persevere because the hard times are coming. The difficult times are coming. The struggles are coming. The doubts are coming. All those things are coming. And one must hold on by Faith. But wouldn't it be easier if faith came in a pill? Wouldn't it be easier if you get up and take 500 milligrams of faith every day? Or you woke up and it was overcast, rainy weather. Some of you are at that stage. I'll be there before long. But some of you are at that stage where you get up and you're like, the weather, you can tell what the weather is doing by how your body reacts. 
In those days, you can wake up and you know it's going to be a spiritually rough day, so you're going to take a thousand milligrams of faith. <laughs> I'll just give it to me in a pill form, Spencer. You can just give it to me in a pill form, that'd be fine. Or maybe, 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 if we could just do it like something you wear. Make it a cross on a necklace, or make it a pair of socks, or, or a hat that you wear, or some type of tassels, or, or some type of prayer. But just give me something I can wear, and so I get on in the morning, I can put on my faith, and I'm good for the day. The mystery is... That faith cannot be bought. Faith cannot be purchased. Faith can only be practiced and lived. But yet, we are living in such a day when we want the quick fixes. We want the shortcuts. We just want the answer to the problem. And Paul wants to remind us that there's some mysteries that are going on in the church today. There's some mysteries that we cannot explain. How is it that we are one in Christ and we are so many different individuals? How is it that God can use the church to reach the lost? How is it that the church's power only comes through faith? How is it that all of these things work together and yet we cannot explain a single one? So then how do we measure our growth? How do we know if we're growing in our faith? How do we know if we're growing in our personal faith or in our corporate faith? Well, I I put down three statements there at the bottom of your notes. Just three statements that I want to give you that I hope will orientate us to ask ourselves a question. Are we growing in this? Are we practicing this? Are we doing this? Three statements. First one. We do not unite. Christ unites. You want to have harmony? You want to have unity in the church? Maybe not uniformity, but if you want to have harmony and unity in the church, how does that come? That comes through Christ. How do we have unity in the home? It comes through Christ. How do we have harmony in this world? It comes through Christ. It's not going to come through a donkey or an elephant. It's going to come through Christ. You want to have harmony with your neighbor? You want to have harmony in community? Get everybody saved. And get everybody saved and being faithful and being, and being fearful of God. Get those people there because Christ unites. We do not. And then secondly, if we are not giving what we have gotten, then we need to ask if we ever got it to begin with. If we are not giving what we have gotten, then we need to ask if we ever got it to begin with. If we're not giving grace, if we're not giving mercy, if we're not giving forgiveness, if we're not giving love, if we're not giving the gospel, if we're not giving our witness, if we're not giving our testimony, if we're not giving the face and the hands and the feet of Christ, then we really need to ask ourselves, did I ever, ever give it, get it to begin with? And this last one. Truth faith, true faith doesn't stagnate. I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, there are many times in our own personal lives and the lives of the people around us that their faith has become to stagnate. They've plateaued. They've stalled out. They've kind of hit a stopping point, cruising altitude, if you will, and they just hang out there. I've learned as much as I'm going to learn. I've grown as much as I'm going to grow. And now I've hit a cruising altitude. And now I'm just going to chill this thing out. I'll go to church, sure. I'll go to Sunday school, sure. I'll have a Bible, sure. I'll listen to something here and there, sure. I'll put up Christmas cards, or I'll put up Christmas lights, or I'll play the part, sure, sure, sure. But we're not growing in our faith. Well, how do you know, Spence? Because we're not telling people about Jesus. We're not inviting people to church. We're not leading people to the Lord. We're not being discipled. We're not discipling someone else. We haven't, we've stopped studying. We've stopped spending that time with God, and we've just kind of hit a wall, and that's it. And we become stagnant. Pond water. 
And that's not what faith is supposed to do. Did you realize that vanilla is the most popular spice in the world? It wasn't always this way. In fact, vanilla traces its origin back to a 12-year-old slave boy living on a tiny island in the India Ocean. Once upon a time, even back in 1841, the world produced fewer than 2,000 vanilla beans. And all of those vanilla beans were all produced in Mexico. Because up until the 19th century, the vanilla orchards were pollinated exclusively by a particular type of bee. And that particular type of bee only resided in Mexico. So you had to have the vanilla bean, the vanilla plant, and then you had to have a particular type of bee to pollinate. And so they tried to uh, uh, tried new attempts, new ingenuities, new uh, ideas out there to industrialize this pollination process, but to no avail. They said vanilla was just simply too stubborn. Until a 12-year-old slave boy named Ed, Edmund Albius on a small island 500 miles east of Madagascar. He was uneducated, but he solved one of botanical's biggest mysteries. You see, as they had these vanilla vines there in Mexico, these certain bees, they tried to export the vines, they tried to export the bees, but nothing seemed to work. And in fact, there on the plantation that Edmund was working at in 1822, the owner of the island, the island of Reunion, he was granted some vanilla plants by the French government to say, see if you can try something here. And so he planted these several vanilla plants, but only one of the vanilla plants ever survived. And then almost two decades, this vanilla plant was there, but it never produced the beans. Until one day, Edmund pollinated it. Unbeknownst to the owner of the plantation, and then in 1841, Edmund is walking with the owner of the plantation, and the owner of the plantation looks at the vanilla, vanilla bean vine and notices there's two beans, and he's astonished. And he's like, how in the world can this happen? And Edmund says, well, it's simple. I pollinated it myself. And he said, oh no, you didn't. No, this wasn't that easy. Show me. And so Edmund reached up with his fingers, index finger and his thumb. And he showed him how he took the pollen-bearing anther and the pollen-receiving stigma and rubbed them between his finger and his thumb, thus pollinating the plant. The result By 1858, Reunion, the island of Reunion was exporting two tons of vanilla. By 1867, they were up to 20 tons. And in 1898, 200 tons. All of this traces back to a 12-year-old boy named Edmund who hand-pollinated a single vine. From that single vine came a billion-dollar industry. And you may say, well, Spence, what's the point? From one man came the church. From 12 disciples, they reached the entire known world within one generation. Don't buy into this lie that you're a nobody. 
Don't buy into this lie that you can't. Don't buy, lie, don't buy into the lie from the, 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 the Satan and, and from those kind of negative sources out there. They're saying, oh, we're just at this church. This church can't do much. Do not buy into the lie that one person can't reach a multitude of people with the truth. Can you just imagine the impact and the effect that Paul has had on church history and Christianity for the years behind us and the years to come? One Man, and I wonder this morning, church, what can you do? What one thing can you do for the sake of the kingdom of God? One boy named Ed Edmund changed the entire vanilla industry. What could one person in this room do for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of this community? in Wellston. Would you bow your heads with me?